Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. As we record this, I'm sitting in my home in Oklahoma. I had been here for a while. I've been staying most, more often than uh, not down in uh, Jacksonville Beach, which uh, this is a little different because as I'm looking outside, it's a little dusky. It's a little, we're early morning, Conrad and I are early risers, and uh, it's like 40 degrees, and I don't like it. I want to go back to the beach. <laughs> so, but anyway, it's good to be home and, uh, be around my sooner friends and, uh, got a little home pro some home construction projects ongoing. I get some painting done and uh, my privacy tents, uh, rebuilt, replaced. It's just, uh, it's old, ugly like me. So I'm going to get some pro- home, home, uh, home improvement projects. So this is uh, average guy. That's all it is. Just happened to wear that black hat occasionally on television. I got to tell you, I'm excited. I like when we get a little bit, uh, there's a little bit of crisp in the air. I think as Aaron Anderson likes to say it's Halloween time, man. And, uh, that means one thing. If you're an old school wrestling fan, Halloween havoc, and that's what we're talking about today. Halloween havoc, 1990 went down on October 27th, 1990 from the UIC pavilion in Chicago. So as we're talking today, uh, I guess when this airs rather two days ago, was the 30 year anniversary. And I remember this show so fondly. It does not feel like 30 years ago. Um, the gate here at UIC pavilion is 115 grand, which is the third largest of 1990 Flair and Luger at, uh, the Meadowlands outdrew it. And of course, Flair and sting in Baltimore, when we finally saw sting become world champion at great American bash also outdrew it. The building here is, uh, essentially sold out. The place was set up for 8,000 fans. There's 7,000 paid and a thousand freebies. So we are at capacity, but this UIC pavilion is a, a building. We don't talk about a bunch, but man, shot town rumble. And now Halloween havoc, 1990, this was a, a great building for WCW. What do you remember about this particular building in Chicago? It was <clears throat> filled with fans, which is always the, the, the magic wand. And there were Chicago fans. Chicago fans are some of the best wrestling fans in the world. And I've done shows or, and, and one man shows and shows with Conrad and, and WWE events galore. Uh, you, you can't find a better wrestling fan than those in Chicago. And they were motivated. You know, we had a, we had a, a, a solid card, uh, and you know, even there's a lot of buzz in the market for wrestling because WWE was in town at the same time across town. It's, uh, 
it's a really fun show. It's a fun era of WCW for me. Um, I guess we should mention this is the second Halloween havoc and it was taglined terror rules the ring. And as you mentioned, the WWF was across town at the horizon. Uh, I think most of us remember that building as sort of the, uh, the classic wrestling venue. It's sort of fun to look back on Chicago though, because you know, we all know the United center now the house that Jordan built, if you will. But then there was the old all state arena, which is the Rosemont horizon where so many classics happened, maybe most notably WrestleMania 13, Bret Hart and stone cold, Steve Austin, which you were on the call for. But now this UIC pavilion it's rare that a town has not one, not two, but three pretty big time, notable wrestling venues. It just solidifies what you said that Chicago was a wrestling town. Yeah. It had been for years. My old friend, Jack Brickhouse, the famous announcer that he broadcast the, the, uh, bears for Papa Hallis. He, uh, broadcast, I think the Cubs or the white Sox, one of the two, I apologize for not knowing that. So he did a, he did, he was the voice of baseball. He was the voice of football. Uh, and Jack also did wrestling. So, uh, at the old Chicago amphitheater was a big thing. And it was, they had, a, they had a great TV imprint in the Midwest. It made and broke a lot of stars. It made a lot of people do that, that Chicago, uh, based, a, a wrestling network type thing. Uh, WGN was a monster still is. So, uh, and then you got Gibson steakhouse, you know, that's another, for me, that's, I'd never go to Chicago without going to Gibson's either one downtown or the one at, uh, out by the, uh, out by the arena. So it's just my place. I like it. I, I like the wood. I like the drinks. I like the staff. There's nothing better when you can find one. Uh, than a better wait staff at, when you're having a, a dining experience, because so many things, so many people now are uh, the younger people that are doing it just for the money really don't understand customer service yet. And these old dudes, man, these veterans who've been there before they get it and they make your dining experience amazing. So Gibson's is my go-to. There's a lot of great things about Chicago, but without a doubt, the number one asset are the people of Chicago, uh, who bring energy and passion and they're uncensored. You get a raw, real feeling. And that's so good. So important. And of course, uh, now I'm my favorite TV show is Chicago PD. I'm a big Hank Voigt fan. The, the, uh, quasi he's a character baby face. So anyway, it's all Chicago's a special place. And this show was very unique. No doubt. Well, let's talk about what, what they're counter-programming you with. This is, uh, we're sort of continuing our Vince McMahon versus Jim Crockett promotions feud that we knew was a really big deal through 87 and 88. Uh, and then in 89, Ted Turner, he's got a new plan, but the rivalry continues. And here in 1990, we're both trying something new. Hulk Hogan is no longer the top star. He's no longer a world champion. It's the ultimate warrior. And for the NWA, well, Ric Flair is no longer the top dog and our champion. That's Sting. So we went with youth. We went with paint and across town. It's Ultimate Warrior and Randy Savage. There's an incredible 8,355 fans there. So they actually have a, a few more fans than the NWA does, but they have a little less gate $102,466. So the strategy was. 
Hey, if WCW is running a pay-per-view, let's set up across town and, and trot out our marquee stars and let's do it for a cheaper ticket and try to hurt their live show. But there's so many wrestling fans in Chicago. You both have yeah. pretty full houses. It was a senseless idea by WWE at that time. Well, we'll screw them. We'll block them. You know, we're the competition. You know, we're, we're, we're the alpha alpha league. Well, come on. Just like you said, Conrad, common sense, buddy. Chicago is the second largest city or the second or third largest city in third, America. Third. third, right? There's a lot of folks live there. Yeah. And they've been watching wrestling since, again, as I mentioned, those Jack Brickhouse years, there's tradition, there's heritage. There's family tradition. You guys go into the wrestling back when they were kids. Now they're taking their kids. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, quite frankly, but to think that you could, you could censor, uh, and affect the city of Chicago on 8,000 seats is brainless. Well, but, but here's the thing in a weird way, they're still doing it. Now when AEW is announced as being on Wednesday, ta-da! now NXT is on TV on Wednesday as well. Yeah, but how's that working? <laughs> how's that brilliant, evil strategy? Oh, we'll, I'll get my team together and we'll come up with something. Oh, here's what we'll do. I'll make a phone call to USA and I'll get them to put an NXT head to head against this fledgling company. If they stumble and fall once or twice, they'll be done. It's just the old money mark thing. So, you know, who's the money mark? This is, I mean, that going head to head, it's good in a boardroom. It's good in a, a raw, raw meeting, but at the end of the day, you bring more people to the television set that are wrestling fans at eight o'clock Eastern time on Wednesday night, because you've got two brands now that the audience can sample and they can watch one. They can DVR one. They can switch back and forth, whatever the hell you do. It's your prerogative, it's your TV, but to think it's going to cripple it. They don't look at the bigger picture. It's just that one evil little, oh, well, it's just, Hey, oh, it's just business. That's the best excuse. And it's been an excuse in wrestling forever. Unscrupulous, unethical situations are always justified by saying, well, it's just business. Okay. Well, it's just business that we're kicking your ass every Wednesday night. Let's talk about uh, Halloween havoc, 1990. There's a 1.3 on pay-per-view. It's roughly 160,000 buys that is down from the great American bash, which did 200,000 buys. And as a reminder, that was Flair and sting on top or sting became the world champion. But the price of this show is actually higher. So the great American bash was 1495 here. It's 1995. So even though buys are down about 40,000, they still wind up with roughly the same number, 3.3 million. Jim in this era. And I guess we should just say this right up front. This is the Jim Hurd era. And, and you've done some fun Jim Hurd impressions over the years here on the show. Were you involved in the strategy or to raise the price of the pay-per-view or what can you tell us about this? Cause clearly well, Conrad, Conrad, excuse me, it probably took about, uh, three or four days of meetings, uh, with, uh, home entertainment group, several meetings, high level, maybe even luncheon meetings, maybe even happy hour meetings, but it had to have a lot of meetings. I'm being fucking facetious. The market was going to bear 1995. Yes, we were, I was, I was asked about that. My opinion was, I think the market will now bear 1995 because pay-per-view is growing. Mm -hmm. 
or people are sampling it. They're, they are understanding how easy it is to order and, and to be billed. So yeah, 1995, I thought here's my, my deal was the old Sam Walton thing. The owner creator of Walmart, let's keep it under 20 bucks. And we did, you know, it could have been, Hey, if, if it had been my money, I'd probably, I've probably done a Sam Walton paper use 1988. <laughs> so, but yeah, the market's going to bear 1995 and it, it was a, it was an easy way to not like a bull in China shop change your price. It kind of went unnoticed by a lot of people. The reason it didn't draw as much was, I don't think it was the 1995 whatsoever. You didn't have Ric Flair and sting on top and that Ric Flair sting story had been told off and on forever. People were ready for a transition or ready for the blow off, whatever, how, how it was going to end. But yeah, I, I think, uh, the Flair sting thing drew that house without a question. And we didn't have that. So we were going to have a little drop off. That was the big blow off. That was like a WrestleMania type thing. So, you know, it just, it just didn't make any sense to, 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 to leave the price at 1495. Here's the thing as a marketer, Conrad, you, I don't know if you agree with this philosophy or not. The price of things, if I'm going to buy something on Facebook, let's say, and I, I look at the price, not because can I afford it, but because is it quality? Yeah. And I'm going to buy a shirt. I buy shirts off of Facebook, these Paul Frederick shirts. That's what I wear on, on nitro on nitro. Yeah. I wear them with nitro too. I wear them, uh, in my dreams. I wear these shirts on, on, uh, AEW dynamite, but they're expensive in my world, but I know they're good and they are good. So I, I keep ordering the same brand, but the price affected my buy. Hey, this is not a fourteen ninety five shirt. This is an eighty nine ninety five dollar shirt type thing. I don't know how much they are, but it's something like that. So anyway, you know, you wait for the sale. You, you get, you get, you pay pay attention, but the price drives you because you already know the quality is good. So I, I, I think that that nineteen ninety five was timely, and it seemed like it worked out okay. Quite frankly, we, we knew we were going to have a, a dip. We were going to have a dip uh, in flare and sting. And everybody thought that, well, maybe this Halloween theme and people in costume, et cetera, et cetera, would get them back. And they didn't, but it wasn't a bad, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a failure. They made money. Ted made more money. Everybody's good. Yeah. This is a profitable show. I do want to talk about, uh, Halloween havoc, because when you look at the VHS cover of this, you see the Halloween havoc logo that we all remember. In fact, it's the one they're using for NXT's Halloween Havoc, but the actual pay-per-view itself, it's a different version of the logo. And that feels like it would have been a Turner home entertainment decision. And I think they also make the decision to only have six of the 10 matches from the main broadcast on the VHS release. And the version that's available on the network is also edited. Why do you think, or what can you tell us about Turner home entertainment? It feels like there's a lot to unpack here. How much say did they have over the VHS release and the, and the pay-per-view broadcast? And then how much revenue did was allocated in, as far as you know, to the Turner home entertainment end of WCW's business, as opposed to, you know, what a normal wrestling company would claim as its own. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, they, uh, Turner home entertainment had everything to do with uh, the DVDs, anything marketing wise to sell a product, uh, video product, 
primarily VHSs at that time. Uh, they, that was their ball game. I'm sure that they, uh, I know that they can, they consulted it with Mr. Hurd. Uh, but you know, they still have the final, final say, I think, uh, that would be, that would be my answer today. Uh, and you know, if you're Mr. Hurd, who's a pretty street smart old dude, you did not uh, want to die on that hill. That's not the hill to die on. There was so much miscommunication and lack of communication and, you know, people going into business for themselves, uh, people that, that watched wrestling occasionally that truly believed that they were experts to some degree, just crazy shit. And, uh, but this, that way I've never been in a wrestling company yet to where the, uh, the guys in the blue jackets and the white shirts and red ties. Uh, who had just a little bit of knowledge. Now they got more knowledge because of, of the, the internet online. Uh, you know, they, they're going to, the, they, they, now they think they're even more empowered. So it's, you, it's just something you, you deal with. And I've never not dealt with it. The only place I didn't deal with it was working for mid South. Cause there was one boss, right? It, it wasn't, it wasn't an electorate electoral electoral college bullshit or whatever. It was one guy. Now he would, he would listen and, and he hired good bookers. He didn't, he didn't have, he didn't put himself in a position where he had to come up with all the ideas. He got money motivated guys like Ernie Ladd and Buck Robley and Ken Mantell and others, Dick Slater, Bill Dundee. He kept changing his, his offensive coordinators and to get fresh ideas on the game plan. And, and a lot of companies just don't do that. And then they put other guys and other guys get involved that think they understand totally the business to a degree that they should be making major decisions. And we obviously, but just what I just said, it's ridiculous. You know, I'm glad we're, we're talking about this, but you sort of referenced it right there. Historically, the decisions had been made in wrestling by a single booker. And I think this era of WCW it's really the advent of the booking committee. I mean, even to this day, the WWF has a whole raw team and a SmackDown team and an NXT team, but it's not exactly just one guy. Uh, sure. All the final decisions are made by one person, but there is a committee and that was probably created by WCW in this era, right? Might've been, yeah, it might've been, might've influenced it. I think the, the issue is, and I know it's very simplistic and very countryfied is that there are too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Who all would have been a part of the booking committee at this time? Obviously you're on it, right? Yeah. Uh, Kevin Sullivan's uh, probably there. He's part, right? Yeah. I think Cornette was on it for yeah. a good while. He might've got, he might've removed himself. Uh, Blair was I, on it. Cornette was on it. Kevin yeah. Sullivan yourself. Mm -hmm. Every now and again, Eddie Gilbert was on it, right? Yeah. There's a variety, a lot of cooks in that kitchen and every cook wanted to, every cook wanted to prepare his dish and if his buddies added to his particular dish of choice, then that guy got a push and God damn it. Conrad ain't it all about the push. <laughs> Let's talk about the Turner home entertainment thing one more time. And then I want to move on. 
these days, I think everybody listening to this knows that one of the biggest revenue drivers for the WWE and for that matter, AEW or is a television rights deal. Well, Turner is a TV company, so they're not exactly allocating any dollars for WCW and saying, here's what we're paying you to produce the pay-per-view or, or television rather. But in addition to that, when a lot of the pay-per-view revenue comes in and certainly when all of the home video release dollars come in, all of that goes to another division. WCW doesn't even get credit for that. Right? Yeah. Horrible deal. Horrible infrastructure that you can say, well, this is what they, they wanted and they did want that internally, the big upper ups for whatever reason, it may have been that the, somebody created the Turner home entertainment division and it was, uh, grossly under, under delivering. So to say their ass, we've got to send us wrestling money over there because we know those wrestlers don't pay any attention. They will realize that they're making themselves vulnerable as hell, uh, by having a loss and loss and loss because we're taking their money away from them. They can't have a profit to any degree can have. So, uh, and they're riding that down turnip truck. They don't know any better. It's just wrestlers. Shit. Dumb fuckers. They don't know. So that's, we never were, uh, that, that's the thing about wrestling and you get non, non participants, non students of the game, non whatever, uh, that's been emotionally waste deep in this thing. This is, these are the decisions that you make because now it's like a wrestler today. You see a guy today that all he knows how to do is, is acrobatics and slap his body, his thigh, his leg, his arm. That's what, that's what is believed to be the way of the world now. And I say it's bullshit. Somebody's playing the role of a pro wrestler or more specifically what they perceive a pro wrestler to be. And that is an acrobat, a leg slapper, you know, no. And they forget about, they, they, they take out, uh, the emotional investment that you want your audience to make in you. And so it's just, a there's a lot of issues right now in pro wrestling that are trends. And you see guys, excuse me, you see guys that are, uh, not going down that trend. You know, John Moxley is uh, a guy that's kind of a stone cold guy, a basic fundamental hardness uh, intensity, physicality. Uh, you can tell by his face, he's a badass. He like you know, he likes the, the competition and the combat, but you got other guys that come out there. You know what you're going to get. You're going to get, uh, they don't even, most of them don't know how to counter a hammerlock. Right. But that's how they were taught. <clears throat> and then some of the guys have had success on the Indies and in both all these companies, all the companies, well, then they, they have success on the Indies and they did really good before 400 people. That's it. And so now they think, well, that, Hey man, we, we had the audience palm of our hand, all 400 of them. Well, it's good that you, all your, your belief is that the entire audience was for you. By the way, they weren't, they never are, they never will be, but you've got to be able to, to, there's a difference in doing a nationally televised TV match and doing a match at uh, a small venue of three or 400 people. Let me ask about the VHS release here for Halloween Havoc 1990. Do you think they, they would shorten these, you know, to just be a limited card based on the cost of the VHS itself? I mean, what's, yep. go ahead. Yep. Absolutely. They, they arbitrarily decided that if we eliminate so much time 
off this pay-per-view. It will, it will eliminate X dollars from the total production of the project. And we can make that much more money. We'll still sell it for the same price. We just won't have to have as much production time involved in the production of it. Simple as that. Something else happening on this show. I think this is the, Hey guys, are you looking for a great father's day gift idea? I know I was, and I found it a couple of years ago with paint your life with paint your life. You get a hand painted portrait created to fit almost any budget. And it's a great gift idea for your mom, your dad, or both. You see, paint your life transforms your photos into a one of a kind, beautiful hand painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload a photo to create anything you can imagine, maybe in a special location or a favorite pet. There's lots of options. You pick the artist, the medium, and you even get to work with the artist to make sure it's perfect. You get started in less than five minutes and you can get the portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded guaranteed. And right now as a limited time offer, get 20% off. That's right. 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Text the word Ross to 87204. That's Ross to 87204. Text Ross to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. The live pay-per-view broadcast announcing spot, blah, 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 debut of Paulie Dangerously. Of course, we know, gosh, uh, 11 years later, you guys are going to just uh, singing, mu- be singing music of a different tune for the WWE and WrestleMania 17. And he becomes really a big time partner of yours that people still talk about that combination to this day. But I think Halloween Havoc 1990 is the first time y'all did it together. What do you remember about Paul sort of putting his toe in the water and sitting by you at the desk? Uh, he was nervous as a whore in church. Uh, he knew that all eyes were on him. He was my choice. You know, uh, there was so much fragmentation of a communication in, in WCW. Just you, 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 you couldn't get answers. You couldn't get timely answers for sure. So, uh, you know, I think Mr. Hurt says he want to work with, and I said, I, let's try Heyman because he and I were, it sounded different. Uh, you know, he was a, a, a a caustic, uh, you know, coarse at times, uh, controversial, uh, you know, all those things. And it was, it was natural. That's his natural personality. He's caustic going into a convenience store. It's just Paul and a little of that New York swag and, and, uh, and his upbringing and everything was just give him an attitude. And he, he understood that he had that attitude pretty naturally. And so he just embellished on it. So he was nervous. You know, uh, he didn't know how I, he knew how I sounded, but he didn't know how I prepared and he didn't know how I worked. I don't work where you say, oh, I've got a great line for it. I got a great line. It's a great line for him to deliver. That's what he's saying to you. So you say this and that's where we stop the conversation. I don't do that shit. Right. 
that's fake as hell. And what we're doing, what we're doing is an, is an, isn't it enough fiction? So I didn't do that. So, but he's so smart and he's so good. He still got his shit. I said, you'll figure it out. You'll, and he looked at me you know, and like, I got to have all these answers. Well, no, you'll figure it out. If you want to get that line in and you believe in it, then you'll figure a way at some point in the show to make it work. And I'll go right along with you. So, uh, but we're not going to do this staged setup, you know, swings. Here's a pitch swing. Okay, here comes the curveball. No, you're not going to know when I'm going to throw the curveball. And I don't need to know when you throw your curveball. It makes the show more spontaneous. So I thought he would do great. He subsequently has done great. He's probably the best promo guy in the business. If not in top four or five without, without question, uh, he's effective. He's been effective with every top talent. There's a reason. Look, you think Heyman is ultra popular backstage right now in WWE? Probably not. Unlikely. So what? He's trusted with Brock Lesnar and now he's being trusted with Roman Reigns. That says all I need to hear about how Heyman is perceived professionally perceived as the best in the game, but just like I told him and, and he, and he laughs about this still to this day. I said, God damn, man, this after we're off the air, I said, God damn, you're easy to hate. And he looked at me incredulously like, God damn, it's a little stiff. JR. I said, no, Paul, that's a compliment. You're a fucking heel. You're a villain. I'm not supposed to like you. And so, and so consequently you are very easy to hate. And that's the best confidence I can give him. Somebody else who was pretty easy to hate in this era, Jim Cornette. It makes the front page of the Altoona mirror newspaper in October after an incident, the previous night, uh, at a 3,200 seat arena, also in Altoona. A fan named Mark Williams jumped the guardrail during a match between the Midnight Express and the Steiners. Bobby Eaton catches the fan and ties him up, and Cornette hit him in the face with the tennis racket and split him open. And of course, there's speculation that perhaps Corny did one of his old tricks and slid a horseshoe into that racket cover. Uh, but in typical Cornette fashion, I guess for the time, he's going for a second swing and Bobby stops him. And uh, it's written in the newsletter. While that's normal, it's not normal for the fan then to be allowed to sit back down in the audience. But that's what security did here. And Meltzer reported that the fan was a baby face to the entire crowd at this point and egged on the heels until he was eventually kicked out. But before that could happen, a lot of fans in the crowd had already called the police. Eight cops showed up to the building with another dozen or so on their way behind him. And they even <laughs> have their dogs. And Cornette's version is that the fan jumped the guardrail, but the fan's wife said the fan was attacked and unprovoked. No arrests were made, but police were still investigating who, what, when, where, why. And, and I know this is a carryover because once upon a time when he was working for Watts, Cornette made no bones about, Hey, sometimes we had to fight our way to the locker room and fans yeah. were, were trying to attack them legitimately. So perhaps he had a, a little bit of a Vietnam flashback here from the Watts days and went after a fan. What do you remember about this? Well, it's obvious that the, the midnight express it in the middle of a match with the Steiner, for God's sakes, provoke a fan to get to a fight that doesn't make, that makes absolutely no common sense. The, the old rule of thumb and guys take it too far because they want to be bullies or they want to be tough guys, or they think it'll help them get over. 
is that when somebody gets inside the rail, they're paid for, Oh, we can do what we want with them. We can have prison sex. No, we can't do that. We can beat them up though. So that's the deal. It's just, it's, uh, the guy got inside the railing, the old rules of engagement kicked in. The, the deal is now Watts might say he's got to pay. Uh, I say you restrain them until security gets there and security takes them away. You don't assault them. Right. <laughs> Just restrain them, hold them down. Security should be there in seconds. Uh, prepared to intervene and remove the individual from the ring and not have all this goddamn drama because it's old school. This is what we do. God damn it. He's paid for. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. That's what you want to hear. The people hear you say, I'll kill him. You know, that could be considered as a, some little murder terms. So I, I don't know. I, Corny's high strung. And of course about that time too, he was stressed all to hell. Yeah. Let's mention that, that there's a lot of un, unrest. He's not happy with the booking committee. He's not happy with Ole Anderson. I think, um, he was complaining to Ole that the midnights had to work three times. Maybe it's Bobby Eaton specifically. He had to work three times in a single set of tapings. This is just a few weeks after Halloween havoc and he's upset about it and goes to fuss about it to Ole and Ole is very dismissive and eventually says something like, if you don't like it, you can leave. And Corny blows up and says, that's the best idea yet. I quit. And he tells Stan Lane and Stan didn't believe him. And he said, well, if you quit, I quit too. Fuck this place. Bobby Eaton did not have the financial capacity to make such a decision. So he stays behind But Cornette and Stan are out of there. And, uh, supposedly one of the other things that Corny was really upset about was an idea that was supposed to happen at Halloween havoc. Allegedly an idea came about somewhere through this booking committee where the Southern boys were supposed to break a pumpkin over his head at Halloween havoc. And he was furious at that idea and flat refused to do it. What do you remember about Corny finally saying that's enough enough's enough. I'm out of here. Well, Corny had made money and he saved money. Good businessman. Stan, apparently the same way. Bobby was not in that, in that position as you alluded to. Uh, and he, Corny was just, he didn't like Ole's booking. Obviously not a lot of people did. Uh, Ole had no, Ole's communication skills could be extraordinary or they could be lousy. And when you say, when you're trying, when you're not trying to solve somebody's problem and you say, well, you can always leave, you say that last. And apparently that's, that's where Ole wanted to go. You know, Ole knew that Cornette was a, had a brilliant mind was going to be, could really contribute to the booking, but he would never be given that opportunity because then that would make Ole look weak. Right. And, uh, old pro wrestlers that are in their, in their roles, they're, they don't want to look weak. They can't, they can't afford to look weak. So anyway, uh, uh, he was in a bad, he, Corny was in a bad spot. He was unhappy. He'd bur- burned out and uh, that's how it ended up. We should have, this, here's the deal. So what would you have done? Jr. Well, what Jr. would have done is I'd have got those guys all together long before this date. And we'd have talked about the future because I would not let them go on, uh, cutting promos in the fucking locker room. 
about I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. Okay, let's figure this out. If you want to leave, then let's work it out to where it's a, it's a business decision. It makes sense on your way out. You can make some good money on your way out and then in, and not burn a bridge. And we bring you back sometime if you want to come back. So you worked it out. You communicate, right? That wasn't done. And it's so easy to do wrestlers like directness and they, you know, they, they like honesty, even if you can't tell them what they want to hear. I don't think that's unique to wrestlers. I think that's everybody. Tell me about the pumpkin creative. There's been oh, a lot. No. Of, I remember that one. Uh, uh-uh. I, I read when I read that, uh, on the notes, I really, I don't know what the hell there. Look, Conrad, there were so many ridiculous ideas floating around. It was like people playing dodgeball with shit. <laughs> you just want to avoid the shit, get hit in the face of the shit. And you just saw what shit was going to stick to the wall and whatever shit stuck to the wall might get on TV. It was horrible. There was, those are, and it was sometimes guys are getting into a mood where they're giddy. You know, they're in this meeting or having the coffees or whatever. No booze. I, I recall. Uh, and you know, they, they, they get giddy to the point that they're seeing who can make the other guy laugh the most. Well, we, we should be taped. We should be taping this shit. It was entertaining, but, uh, you know, those, those, the committee was just, it, it was, it was, it was doomed. It's one of those deals where you see a system and you say, this system is built for failure. And that certainly was the case there. Let's talk about somebody who uh, wants to come into WCW. We know Cornette wants to go out. Well, the other greatest wrestling announcer of all time wants to come in. It's reported that Bobby, the brain Heenan met with Jim Hurd about possibly jumping ship from the world wrestling federation to WCW. And then of course he winds up re-signing with the WWF. And I think at that moment, everyone realized, oh, that was probably just a negotiation play for Vince McMahon to get a little more money out of him. Uh, were you hopeful or optimistic, or was it even on your radar that Bobby Heenan was interested in coming to town? Well, I, first of all, when I first heard it, I thought that Bobby's using this for leverage. Yeah. Cause that's the obvious thing. It's the common sense thing. And he got Vince's attention. You know, we did the same thing with mean Gene. When, uh, when mean Gene's contract ended, you know, Vince pulled me aside. So we're going to let Gene go and, uh, I'm going, but I'm not going to tell anybody. And so he can get a better deal at uh, WCW and it, it helped Gene get a hell of a good deal. They thought they were stealing him. That's what Vince said. Right. And there may have been something to that. So anyhow, uh, yeah, you know, goddamn man. Anytime you get, you know, I, I eventually got to work with Bobby doing wrestling challenge in 93. Uh, it was a dream come true because he's so brilliant. He made me better. And, uh, and he was just a, a genius to work with comedic genius, dramatic genius. It could be funny. It could be evil. It could be a color guy. It could be a manager. And, and people forget if you go back on, on YouTube and th- so wherever else you source your nostalgia in the AWA, he was a hell of a heel. Right. Uh, look at someone's old taste of Dick, the bruiser who broke him in. He was a hell of a heel. He's a bump taking machine. And he didn't mind bleeding. So to add all the drama and excitement to his act. So, uh, but I think Bobby realized I could make as much money if I get really, really good at this manager thing. And he did. And he did make more money. 
somebody else who wants to make more money for seemingly less dates, Jake, the snake Roberts. Apparently he also has a meeting with a uh, herd and the crew and he asked for half a million dollars as a guarantee. And, uh, I think at the time WCW thought that number was way out of line. We know that eventually Jake would come over. Um, would this, would this have been a good move? It does feel like in 1990, he could have been a real shot in the arm for WCW. You were looking for big heels and he could have been one of your biggest ones. Was it, was it not the right time or, or was he just way out of line on the money? Money was a big issue. These issues are, I said many times in the show, uh, it's about two things, cash or creative. Right. And, uh, Jake was smart enough to know how to book himself and to contribute ideas to help get him over as a heel or whatever he's going to be, probably a heel. Uh, and a lot of the TV time he needed, especially talking, uh, to establish his character. Uh, but the money was, uh, not in the, in the cards. Just wasn't there. So it's like, so, well, they pay Al Habrowski this much money for the brace. Well, that's fucking the brace. Okay. Uh, they also, they, they pay Dominic Wilkins more money than that for the Hawks, but that's the NBA. We're the goddamn wrestling guys. We take our seats on the turnip truck and we just mind <laughs> our own business. Let's talk about uh, house show business. It's down pretty bad here. Uh, Meltzer would say a lot of that is because of the syndicated TV ratings. Uh, worldwide and NWA pro are on 158 independent stations. And the average rating is roughly a 1.6 for those programs. By comparison, the WWF has 242 stations doing roughly a 4.8 average. So Meltzer's theory is if you're doing that type of business with your syndicated TV, it will result in much bigger house shows. I don't think that's necessarily a unique concept, but I haven't ever heard it broken down like that for syndicated TV as compared to broadcast, you know, what someone was doing on USA network versus what they were doing on TBS. Was this a, a, a key metric that you guys kept tabs of that? goddamn, these are directly correlating our syndicated TV and our live house show attendance. Again, that was the Turner home entertainment thing to tell boost, uh, booster bolster, uh, the syndicated network. It's been known since I, before I got the business in 1974, Conrad, that your syndicated television business drives the live event ticket sales. <clears throat> they didn't have, we didn't have any more, uh, uh, you know, sources of revenue. When I first got in the business, there was no pay-per-view. There were no rights fees to any degree. <clears throat> so, uh, but that's, that's not a secret. That's not a Meltzer didn't discover the, this new information that, you know, has busted a wide open. It's always been that way. And he's such a close guy with Paul Bosch. For example, Paul Bosch could give you chapter and verse on uh, his TV ratings in Houston. And he could tell you by the ratings that how he was going to start drawing because more eyeballs are watching the show. Right. More people were what were, were potential customers. So yeah, that's, that's been that way forever, but I don't remember getting, uh, every now and then if they got a good clearance, they would, uh, they being Turner home entertainment would hear, we get a, you know, uh, something in the, in the uh, email or something. They might want me to say, uh, well, we want to thank the KDLR and St. Louis or whatever, uh, for joining our family type deal. 
but nothing more than that. They just didn't, they were, they were very dysfunctional as we pretty much outlined here. You know, we had a lot of fun. They were fun at happy hour. They really were. They pick up the tab. They laughed, told stories, enjoyed the stories of boys and all of us are telling, but you know, it's just, they weren't, I don't know if they did. Maybe they just didn't have a great leader in that department that understood our, our genre well enough to, to, to uh, monetize it. Let's talk about, uh, some of these anemic house shows, the, uh, August, or I'm sorry, October 19th show in Augusta, Georgia, 700 fans there. It's pretty remarkable. Columbus, Georgia on, uh, the 28th has sting and Stan Hansen on top, the Steiner brothers and the nasty boys, 800 folks. Norfolk only drew $11,000, not people dollars at the gate. Richmond did 13,000. One of the things we've talked about with Eric Bischoff on 83 weeks is every time WCW went out to do house show business, when he first took over, they were losing money. Yeah. And a lot of the folks on the corporate side said, well, the solution is let's run more shows. And he thought (laughs) that's the worst idea ever. Let's kill some of the house show business. Was the business changing or was business just down and we needed to have better creative to draw bigger houses? If you, if you book what the fans want to see, they will come. I, you know, I'm not talking about field of dreams here, right? Uh, it, if you give the right attraction, if the right attraction, the big, the TV stars they see on TVS are rolling through their town and, and it is properly promoted. Do you have talent? Do you have, as uh, Hank Voigt would say. Do you have boots on the ground? You know, do you have people in the market? Do you have, is your promoter in the market? Is your, uh, do you have a star that you can take with him on for a media day? Cause in some of those smaller markets, all people would rejoice to get a, a guest with had, that had name identity. Those, those things are largely not being done. So you got in the card change consist uh, constantly. You're going to go see sting. No, he's not on the card. Wait, he's back on the card. No, he's wait. Is he, you know, so there's confusion. So when the the promotion creates a confusion in the marketplace, it's kiss of death. And then when the shows are poorly promoted, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, that's the fait accompli. You, you checked all the boxes to see your show do shit because I, you can't tell me that sting versus Stan Hansen was not a good main event. I can't, I'm not going to buy that one. Uh, and, but they, it, it didn't draw. So maybe it wasn't a good main event in, in that context, but I wonder how many people actually knew they were coming to town. The worst thing that I used to I, I cringed, you go to fly into a city to do TV. Uh, and people say, Hey, Jr. what are you doing in town? Oh shit. So, you know, it's just, you, you realize that the shows have been poorly promoted. So I think that's another issue there, but the left didn't know what the right was doing. The leadership was suspect in those areas. Uh, I wonder how hard some of those dudes worked, but it was very disappointing and especially disappointing for the talent. They gave them no hope that we're on the right road. None whatsoever. The smartest thing that one of the smartest things I think off the top of my head that Eric did was he, he, he got made sure that Turner paid him for his television product. And that made, that was a difference. That was a big difference maker. So all the money going to turn home entertainment, WCW kept some cash. 
let's talk about um the nwa and then we'll get to the show let's talk about what's going on here because it comes out in november that the nwa is upset with wcw because they've been using the nwa name for like the last two years ever since turner purchased the, the territory from crockett but they never had i guess explicit permission and so there's no real demand for what sort of resolution they want other than a payday and the board at this time is made up of Don Owen, Fred Ward, uh, Elliot Mernick, uh, of course, Jim Crockett, uh, Stephen Ricard, and uh, of course, giant Baba chat me up here. Heard sends a memo out saying, don't use the term NWA on any telecast until we figure this out. Yep. The board was okay with them calling their shows NWA main event and NWA pro wrestling, but they don't want randomly. NWA used the newspaper ads and they don't want to acknowledge sting as the NWA champion. What is this about? Is this just a hold up? I mean, it feels like at this point, the NWA is a dead entity and you guys are keeping it alive just by having it on TV. But now they're sort of being dictated to, I don't know. I, I can't make heads or tails of this. Well, you had a lot of people have people that had a lot of agendas, Conrad. You know, Don Owen was a very, uh, respected NWA promoter up in the Pacific Northwest for years. Fred Ward was a part of that whole Atlanta con- contingent. Elliot Mernick was the right-hand man of Jim Crockett. As far as promoting live events, Jim Crockett promotions themselves. Steve Ricard was a promoter in fucking New Zealand. And of course, giant Bob probably didn't even know what the hell was going on over there in Tokyo. He might, if I'm being facetious, I guess, or asshole. Uh, so everybody had an agenda. And I've, I, I, I'm like you, I believe it was a, uh, they put more value in their perception of what the NWA still meant to the, uh, voting public, so to speak, than, uh, we did. It was a dead brand. It meant nothing anymore. It only meant nostalgia. It meant way back. And I hate to say that because I'm an NWA guy. I, I love the NWA. But quite frankly, the, the power brokers, these same guys now that want money or some of the same guys that let the brand die. So then we're expected to ride in our white horses and resurrect it. When you don't want sting is to be recognized as the NWA champion because it would mess up their chain of, of, uh, uh, you know, trans transforming or transferring the championship. Uh, then we we're, I, I you know, my vote was always to, to herd and everybody else. Let's get out of it. We don't need it. We got W they got the WCW brand. We're trying to build. You're trying to build that and then maintain or, or resurrect a, a dying brand that's on life support. Didn't make any sense to me. Let's, uh, let's talk about the open of the show. We're finally here. Halloween havoc, 1990. We should mention there were two dark matches. Tim Horner over Barry Horowitz in eight and a half minutes, Rip Rogers over Reno Riggins in just under four minutes. But the show opens on pay-per-view with like a 3d haunted house. They've got the hokey and spooky Halloween setting. And once inside the house has animated ghosts of the wrestler, starting with Stan Hansen. When you look back at this, it feels a little archaic, but for 1990, this was a pretty cool look, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a Turner home entertainment, uh, production, I believe. And, you know, Keith Mitchell's crew may have had something to do with it too. You know, I wouldn't surprise me, but he has some talented guys, but I think this is a Turner home entertainment creation. Uh, a lot of those pay-per-view oriented things 
you know, uh, that one that people laugh about still with the guys on the beach walking out of the water and all that shit. That was a Sharon Sodello deal. And she was uh, always to show you how, how much, uh, how much sense she had. She, she lived with Oli. So there you go. Let's get to, uh, the open of the show in real life. We see you wearing a mobster style fedora. Paulie's here dressed as a vampire. We eventually see Tony Schiavone. who's dressed up as the Phantom of the Opera. And of course he's wearing lipstick. This is, uh, <laughs> uh that's funny. This is fun. You know, I, I'm sure that folks occasionally didn't really like this idea, but I like the idea of if it's a Halloween themed pay-per-view, let's have our announcers in costume. Did you think that was a good idea or bullshit? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, it's a matter of what kind of costume you wear. You know, if they want me to dress up as a giant hot dog where my face is coming out of the bun, I probably would have said, uh, uh-uh. uh, or as Gordon Sully would say, uh, uh-uh. I wouldn't have done it. Uh, cause it's, it's stupid. It takes, it's, it's distracting me, you know, me being a monster. I was funny. I think somewhere along that time, remember that show Pawn stars. Yep. The old man, the, the father. They, they, they called him this, the old man, the, the, uh, he wore those fedoras. Somebody said I was dressing as him. It was actually a, a cause we're in Chicago and they're kind of known for their mafia heritage. You know, Al Capone lived there. Hello. Uh, that's what I, what I did. And it was easy for me because I could, I could wear a normal suit. Then I put that fedora on and it's, there's what you got. So I didn't go all, all whole hog on this thing. But my character fit the marketplace and for the event. And Heyman was a perfect vampire. I mean, he, and here's the difference is I think this is the second Halloween Havoc, right? Yep. Cornette was the color man on the first one. And he's wearing a con- begrudgingly a Confederate officer's uniform uh, from the Civil War, obviously. And he hated it to the point that he, it, he, he, it got somehow or another, the costume got torn up before it was, you know, as it was turned back in, but all that shit was rental and that kind of deal. I did go out and buy my own hat. Uh, so, but Heyman was all for it. He, he, he got into the, to the deal enough to get it over on the beginning of the show, the Oak show open and off we went. So, uh, difference in talents, difference in their, their particular likes and dislikes, but that's one, one of the differences between, uh, Cornette wanted to stay more mainstream, more, uh, traditional NWA, if nothing, for lack of a better term, where Heyman was willing to tr- try different things. They're trying and, some new things here with the ring presentation too. I'm colorblind, but they tell me the ring canvas is dark red and the ropes and turnbuckles are orange all in the theme of Halloween, the middle rope has uh, stripes of black tape added as well. What'd you think of uh, even dressing up the ring here for Halloween? Might as well go for it. Let's keep the, this, if we're going to market it, let's still do it half ass. Let's do it. And, and hopefully knock on wood. It gets over. Let's talk about what is getting over. It's our first match. It's a three and a half star match. We're starting it with a barn burner. They go 20 minutes and 49 seconds. Uh, it was announced as a 20 minute time limit, but they went barely over. It's Tommy rich and Ricky Morton beating the midnight express. Meltzer would say the first half of the match wasn't good, but he does put over Bobby Eaton as being the best performer on the entire card. There are some comedy spots here with Jim. You Cornette. could actually say that, Connor, excuse me. You could actually say that most nights. That's not really a revelation. 
The Bobby Eaton was the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Bobby Eaton. Huntsville, Alabama's own Bobby Eaton. Boy. I don't know. Okay. Uh, Bobby was uh, the best performer down near any night. So, uh, but that's not new news. But nonetheless, I'm glad it was pointed out. Cornette is going to hit Tommy Rich <laughs> with the racket, and the Southern boys come out dressed up like Jim Cornette with pillows in their stomachs and butts. They've got badminton rackets and unmatching outfits. All hell breaks loose and the Southern boys hit Cornette. The rackets in the ring. Rich hits Stan Lane with a racket and gets the pinfall. And Meltzer would say the first half of the match wasn't good. And the finish wasn't covered well by the TV cameras. I've seen better rock and roll versus midnight matches. However, Eaton's work can't be praised enough. Three and a half stars. What'd you think? Oh, great opener. Yeah. You got, uh, I- Look, he, Meltzer likes action and high spots, hence his love, I think, uh, unabashedly and, 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 and why not of new Japan, for example, uh, I think that this match started slow because they had 20 minutes. Did this match need in hindsight, 20 minutes, if you had taken some of the time out of it, you could have had a faster start. Instead, they started deliberately, started slow. They built to the end and the end worked. So to me, it was a good match and to get three and a half stars from Meltzer. That's, that's a, that's a good grade. No doubt about that. But, uh, I thought they did their job. You start the show off, get the people off their ass, create some excitement. And that first spot out on a pay-per-view is very, very important. The next match is not on the network because it wasn't on the video release. It's Terry Taylor pinning Bill Irwin in 11 minutes and 54 seconds. And Meltzer says there were two problems with the match. First of all, Jack Brickhouse came out and talked about everything, but the match says the segment didn't work particularly to a national audience because Brickhouse hasn't been in the national spotlight in literally decades. So his presence wasn't enough to carry the second. The segment rather, excuse me. Mm-hmm. He also says that the fans aren't into wild bill and Terry Taylor has been positioned as a enhancement talent. So they're essentially a non entity to the crowd, but he thought their work was good. He, cl- he said it was great execution, good timing, good moves, lots of near falls, but the audience just never gave it a chance. He gave it two and three quarter stars. A lot of our younger listeners may not even know who the hell Jack Brickhouse was, but I know you do. What can you tell us about that segment and, uh, how Jack Brickhouse got a gig here? Well, he's a Chicago legend and, uh, I'm not going to go just by what the young audience thinks. Right. A lot of people in Chicago knows, knows Jack Brickhouse. I've mentioned he, he, he was the voice of the goddamn Cubs or white Sox on radio when the radio was huge. And he was also the voice of the Chicago bears. He, he can't be a stranger to everybody. Right. So, uh, but Jack did our, did wraparounds little on cameras for, uh, little commentaries for uh, NWA Chicago or whatever it's called. Uh, and you know, I don't know that we got We don't get on WGN without Jack Brickhouse. Right. I, I think Mr. Hurd had, uh, you know, had great loyalty for those older guys because Brickhouse was a sports casting legend. And I think Hurd just threw a bone out there in the intent of help, you know, giving Jack a, a nice payday and a, and an outing, you know, we talked about why this, this match was not on the DVD. It may be simply the fact that 
when negotiating with Mr. Brickhouse that we didn't get the rights to the pay-per-view or to, uh, anything past the pay-per-view. He may have had a one-off deal. And so there may have been, and you say, well, how could that, how could that happen? Incompetence is how it happens, not thinking. So that could be a reason. I don't know that it is the reason that that thing was not on the, on the DV, on the, on the VHS or whatever. Uh, but I think we didn't put Jack in a good spot, uh, to have a, to have him try to commentate an 11 minute cold match. It was illogical in hindsight by far. We did not do Jack Rickhouse justice, uh, there. It should have been like a nice little interview, you know, a nice Tony could have done a great interview with him because Tony knew Jack Rickhouse's background. Tony being a big baseball guy, uh, you know, Rickhouse is one of the major voices of major league baseball in a major city for years. He, uh, wrote a couple of books. Thanks for listening. A man for all seasons. He made the phrase, Hey, Hey, which I start all of my shows with famous. Uh, he broadcasted for the Cubs for 40 years, the white Sox for 27 years, the bears for 24 years. He was the first voice of the bulls. I mean, it's, it's pretty ridiculous what all this guy did, but I don't think uh, maybe a lot of the wrestling fans here were super familiar. And when they're not familiar with him or maybe some of the, um, the performers in the ring, maybe I get why it was a miss next up though. We're trying some new stuff. The goddamn candy man, Brad Armstrong pins mm -hmm. JW storm with an inside cradle, five minutes and two seconds. Meltzer would say storm has a lot of potential, but he's so green right now. Armstrong looked great in carrying this to a watchable match. Nice surprise finish. Wrestling has so few genuine upsets that this was a significant plus to the show. Star in a quarter. It's not on the network, but boy, Tony Schiavone has had a lot of fun talking about how Jim Hurd wanted a candy man. Yeah. Um, what's the strategy here? Is it, we need something to appeal to kids or yeah, exactly. Totally WWE ish. What can we create a character that would appeal to children to enhance our children's demographic and one way, what do kids like? Well, they like candy. So the candy man comes out. He's a pretty good hand. Uh, he's Brad Armstrong is a great hand, quite frankly, but you got the candy man as a, as a viable baby face, giving away candy to kids. Simple. That's all it was. Next up. We've got, uh, well, you know what, before we move on, Brad Armstrong, is there a gimmick they could have given him that would have worked? All we hear from his peers is they never worked with a smoother, more competent guy in the ring. And he had tons of charisma and had all the boys cracking up backstage, but the red light comes on and it's a different guy. And I feel like in this era, they tried a few different gimmicks with him and we just never really found the right one. And, and people even started to talk about something called the Armstrong curse, which we know mm. is no longer a thing, but Brad Armstrong, it felt like had such a huge upside, but it just never clicked. When you look back at all the various gimmicks that quote unquote got over, could we have slid him in any of those and it worked? Well, uh, talent wise, he could do anything. Brad could do anything. The most effective Brad was, was being himself. Uh, I saw, I've seen several interviews that Brad had with his dad on TBS back in the day. And of course, bullet Bob was one of the great talkers ever. He could talk the shit, man. He was good. And Brad picked a lot of that up, but Brad followed his dad's lead and being his father's son, he had a lot of the same traits. I've always believed 
if a set down interviews, a series of those interviews, the pressure that was to be the son of a legend, you know, what's expected of him, all those things, let him be in his natural element and just have a conversation, not do a performance of a promo, just sit down and talk and have somebody talking to him that can ask the questions that will induce the right answers and right responses that you want the baby face to be projected as. So I just think that that was kind of the deal. Brad was so good and everybody knew he was so good that he could, he could be good at any role. He could be a Rackna man. He could be, uh, the candy man. He could be any man you wanted to be. You put a mask on him and somebody had convinced a committee that, well, you know, uh, put a mask on him and he may, he may let his personality explode. We didn't need to do that. And we overthought it. All this arachnoman shit and the Candyman stuff may look good on paper. It may have been fun to talk about, but uh, it wasn't the right thing for Brad. And Brad should have just been Brad Armstrong, and and do those sit downs and the series of maybe four weeks, six weeks, and to get the people to really know this kid, and and to know about his life and his motivation and who he is and all this stuff. So you know he had to be more than bullet Bob's son and we didn't give him a chance to do that so i look at that as, as a fumble on our end i've always i've had a lot of arguments with the committee about that type thing match six also not on the network it's master blasters beating the southern boys in seven minutes and 17 seconds boy i feel bad for armstrong and smothers here they've got their work cut out for them against a very green team against uh, al green who I believe is, uh, well, he's one half of the master blasters. You didn't commit it. To, you didn't commit it to memory. Did you? He's blade. And the other one's steel and steel is Kevin Nash. And I always get them confused. Which one's blade, which one's steel, but you see a very green Kevin Nash here as steel. And, uh, there is one clothesline in particular. That sounds like a fucking gunshot going off that Al. And I forget if he's blade or steel, the non Kevin Nash guy, Al green nails a clothesline on Tracy smothers that it comes through your speakers. And it sounds like pyro, uh, <laughs> it's a bad day for those guys. Of course, master blasters pick up the win seven minutes, 17 seconds. He gets one star. And after the match, the boys drag Cornette in the ring and spank him. So at least we get to send fans home happy, but this is, uh, this is an LOD ripoff. To the point that the crowd is actually chanting LOD, LOD. Uh, thankfully we know that it worked out for Kevin Nash, but along the way, he's going to have to be Oz and Vinny Vegas. So we're yeah. not quite done with our tour of duty, but man, Al green here, that clothesline. What do you remember about him or this master blaster concept? Uh, he had a great body and he, he looked like the, you know, they, they were trying to, uh, emulate the LOD in theory in the creative theory. Not unlike Cowboy did with uh, Sting and, and Warrior being Blade and Sting, uh, the ma- uh, what were where they were called? What were they called? Uh, just slipped my mind. Uh, Blade Runners, right? Yes. So same same theory. Cowboy wanted to play off the popularity of the Road Warriors, and uh, but he, and he did until it, a Warrior flaked out and went to Dallas. Uh, Sting stayed there to learn and he had a hell of a career. Not that word didn't have a good career, not as long as Sting's. And I'd venture to say Sting made more money because he stayed in the business longer. Uh, so 
I don't know. I, I, Al was a st- stocky guy, nice guy. You know, I don't know what happened to the dude. He, I don't know if he's still alive or not. I know that Tracy Smothers is battling cancer and he's really in a, I think he's in stage four cancer. He's, uh, he's in a fight for his life literally right now as we speak. So you, if you got an extra thought or prayer for, uh, a guy that's a, was a hell of a, hell of a hand, I promise you that, uh, Tracy Smothers was that guy T- tough. And man, he was, a, he's a, he, nobody screwed with Tracy Smothers. He'll fight your ass and drop a hat. And so by I, the way, I, I, he's fighting cancer right now. We should mention they've got a GoFundMe set up for him. He's, uh, he needs our help. He's one of our favorite wrestlers. Uh, you go back and watch his stuff. It's just hard to, it's hard not to be a fan of this guy. And, uh, they're trying to raise money right now over at gofundme.com. Just look up Tracy Smothers, T R A C Y Smothers. And friend of the show, Chris Hero, actually helped set it up, but he's still in the hospital even this past week, in and out battling here. Yeah. Uh, so every little bit helps. Check it out. It's gofundme.com and check him out, Tracy Smothers. Good, good stuff, Conrad. Yeah, good, good information. Oh, so hey, look, if you get, if you got a dollar, uh, seriously, every, every single contribution helps this situation. So it's a, it's a, it's a life changing time for old Tracy. And I just, you know, hope that, you know, he can battle through this damn thing and, and whip his ass. Like he's whipped a lot of guys ass over the years, but, uh, he needs our help. So let's, let's try to come up as wrestling fans and help to do that. I wonder if cauliflower alley clubs helping him. Uh, I got to think they are. You'd think that's what they're there for. I'm a big cauliflower alley club booster, cauliflowerallyclub.org. You know, Conrad's a lifetime member. I'm a lifetime member. It's Tony Schiavone and I did a tape to ride along just a few days ago, leaving Jacksonville, driving to Atlanta. And Tony mentioned to me that he was, a, he'd, he'd, he had joined. So it's good that we need to give back. It's not a sin. So help old Tracy out if you can folks, seriously. Next up, something straight out of wrestle crap. Sting is being interviewed by Tony of the opera. And then all <laughs> of a sudden the black scorpion appears kidnaps a young woman and takes her to a cage. And then she vanishes behind the curtain inside the cage. Black Scorpion tosses the girl off the stage. Sting has to catch her. And then we come back to poor Jim Ross and Paul Lee, who are tasked with selling this horse shit. Yep. Heyman acts like he's in a panic because he's just seen <laughs> black magic. This is one of those things where I think Ole Anderson did shoot interviews over the year where he would hand Jim Hurd the booking sheet. Here's what we're doing on the shows. And he would keep rejecting them. And eventually Ole just wrote the black scorpion as an opponent for staying. And supposedly Hurd says, that's great. Let's go with it. Now the trouble is nobody knew what the fuck it was. He just made it up. He just wrote it down. So they don't even have a character necessarily picked out for who they want this to be. It's going to be. A variety of folks. They're going to tease that it's someone from Sting's past. Uh, famously, Al Perez was one of the guys who was asked to do it, and I think he thought it would hurt his career. Little did he know, wasn't going to be much without the Black Scorpion. Should have probably done it in hindsight. Yeah. And they just have Ole Anderson put on a silly voice backstage and do a series of horseshit magic tricks. What the fuck is this, Jim? Oh, it's exactly what you portrayed. Oh, didn't have a better idea. 
the black, he created a character to fight our champion and didn't know who the character was going to be in real life. Kind of an issue, kind of a big point. Uh, I remember asking Oli, I said, Oli, what gonna, what's this black scorpion there? What are we going to do? I don't know. I don't give a shit. We'll figure it out. So, and finally it was an, almost like an 11th hour decision before, uh, Rick, Rick Flair decided or, or agreed to be the black scorpion. That wasn't something that was established weeks, but in advance because this angle was being booked daily. It's just, we knew the end was going to be black scorpion and sting. Who's the black scorpion going to be? We don't know. Well, we're they're going to have this match. We're not sure. So, you know, it was a lot of same old shit, man, this incompetence. And you're trying to keep up with the story, try to tell the story, try to mean some sort of logic. And you, sometimes you just couldn't, there was no logic to be had. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next thing here on the show. It's free birds and renegade warriors. The free birds in this era are Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. The renegade warriors are Mark and Chris Youngblood. They go 17 and a half minutes too long. And Meltzer says it was 20 minutes too long. Yeah. Which too is long. not good. The finish is not good either. It's supposed to be Hayes DDTing him. And, uh, the trouble is young blood's head doesn't come within 18 inches of the mat. Garvin pins him. Meltzer would say Garvin has a bad knee. So he has a legit excuse. I'm not sure about the other three negative two stars. And it is noticeable when you go back and you watch this, you seem like red ass Jr. through the whole match. Is it because of the horseshit black scorpion segment? Is it because this match sucks combination of both? What do you think? Uh, a combination of both, you know, it just, we needed something strong to come out of that black scorpion situation, uh, a non wrestling situation, a non thought through situation. And we needed a real, a real good match. And the match, as I remember, look, the, uh, the young bloods come from great bloodline and, and they, they were, they've been, you know, their family's been in the business for a long time and, and they had the potential to be a really good team for us at that time. <clears throat> the Freebirds have been around forever, had great name identity. Uh, but it just, there was just, it, they didn't click, man. They just didn't click. I don't know what the deal was. Uh, you know, everybody will speculate, well, the young bloods didn't want to do the job. I don't think that was it at all. They're pro, they're pros. They understand somebody's going to win. Somebody's going to lose. Uh, but I, I, I was, when you're sitting in that chair as the voice of that brand and as the voice of that show, the narrator, uh, and you're, you feel, sometimes you feel helpless and you're in a situation that is, you know, isn't good. And the harder you try to make it good, it might even make it worse. So it's very frustrating to be there in that regard. And we've done a lot of work on the show. It was an important show for us and God damn We just, where, where's the sense of urgency? Right. So, so at the, in the, the long, the short answer for a uh, long answer, I guess is, uh, should that match have even been booked? I don't know how much we, how much, how much favor we did the talent. And of course I, they, I'm assuming they got a little, a little extra money would have been a lot, uh, it, for having the match. So you can't just use the, well, to kill them on a payday. Uh, I don't know that really would have killed them on a payday if they, cause I don't know if they got paid extra. They're all, they're all in weeklies. 
So I got to tell you, back. I would have much rather have seen the goddamn Candyman here, uh, and maybe even that Master Blaster match because both of them together are only twelve minutes. You could have stuck them in there, but somehow we needed to see the Renegade Warriors on the video release. Next up, we see a Horseman promo. I don't know why, but I've always enjoyed this promo. I think it's just the look of the guys on the stage and the crowd behind them. Uh, but Flair, Arn, and Sid here to do a really fun promo. And then I think arguably one of the more fun matches of the year. And I know that we say this every week, but I think if you're going to go back and watch one match on the show, it should be this one. Rick and Scott Steiner take on the nasty boys, 15 minutes and 24 seconds in the Steiners pick up the win to retain their United States tag team titles. Meltzer would say probably the stiffest match in the United States this year, three brutal chair shots. Scott Steiner basically stole the entire show. Not I, thought the, Eaton did. I thought Bobby Eaton did that. Well, he said, Bob Eaton's the best performer. Oh, okay. never mind. But I'm Scott Steiner stole the show. Uh, he says, even with his weaknesses, he should be a world champion as soon as they get him to that point in a logical manner, meaning don't rush this. You have a great tag team growing here, but this, when I was a kid, this was one of my favorite matches to watch. And I didn't really understand why until later the nasty boys and the Steiners beat the shit out of each other. Uh, three and a quarter stars. This is a guilty pleasure match for me. I love it. One of my all time favorites. What'd you think, Jim? I love the match too, Conrad. I, I, I had a lot of respect for both those teams. Uh, you know, I've been around the Steiners since both of them got in the business. Uh, Meltzer's right. You know, it, there was a time in his career that Scott Steiner would have been a phenomenal WCW world champion, no doubt. And time went on. People just reflect back to what they last heard or last saw whatever. But in this era, we got to remember this is what 1990. Yep. So geez, you know, that's a long time ago, man. Uh, so that, that Scott Steiner would have been Meltzer's right in that analogy, I, I believe, but I think that the knobs, especially in SAGs, uh, they, they rose to the occasion. They weren't going to be outmanned by the Steiners and their reputation, even though we all know that if, you know, in reality, the two amateurs would, could beat anybody pretty much in our roster. I don't know anybody. We had anybody that could beat Steiner, either Steiner. So, uh, but they stood there and they stood their ground and they, they gave, they made, here's what they did. Here's what the, the nasty boys did. They made sure that the Steiner brothers beat somebody. And by the Steiner brothers having to beat somebody that made the Steiner brothers over a little bit more. So, uh, it was, uh, it was stiff. They were, you know, they were going to apologize later, but you're, you're right. They, they, they beat the shit out of each other. So if you get a chance to go back and watch that one. Uh, you probably enjoy it, folks. If you like stiff, that strong style is, has been bandied about, whatever that means. There's a lot going on here. At the end of the match, we should mention Sags needs eight stitches. Eight. Uh, we would see uh, Sags nail Scott Steiner in the back of the head with a chair shot early on. It's brutal. There's a possible receipt from Rick Steiner, who then hits Sags in the back of the head. That's what causes <laughs> the cut. The slow motion Frankensteiner finish is a thing of beauty. Sags doesn't get all the way over. So he winds up taking it almost like a pile driver. It's unbelievable. And immediately after the match, at least on the network, there's an interview with Scott Steiner, uh, by the phantom of the Shivani, which, uh, we see a, a concession stand worker 
attack him from behind with a plastic tub. It turns out it's Jerry Sags, who's changed clothes from the previous match. And I know you're wondering, well, how did he do that so quickly? Well, that's not the way it happened at the actual pay-per-view. They added it off the next match, which is junkyard dog beating moon dog Rex in three minutes and 15 seconds. Meltzer would say the WWF gives you a five minute intermission and 10 minutes of interviews coming back from intermission. At least it was short, but it had no business whatsoever on the show, particularly at this point of the show, he gave it a dud rating. What'd you think of the whole concession stand attack onto Scott Steiner from the nasty boys where, Hey, maybe the match is over, but the feud is not. It's uh, simply done to appease more talents. You get Steiner as a great match. Uh, you know, he's, he, he vanquishes the bad guys as Scott with Rick, of course, and they're the, the audience is on a high we're, we're, we're jubilant about the potential of Scott Steiner being a champion. Uh, and everybody that knows anything about wrestling can see that. Uh, but then of course, then we come back and the heat and the, oh, the overness that uh, Scott attained in that tag match was essentially negated by. Uh, an add-on and that was an add-on to, you know, to make sure the nasty boys got repositioned, so to speak. I didn't think the nasty boys needed to be repositioned. They had a hell of a match. They lost big deal. You know, that, that match could have gone either way, li- li- literally, and it didn't, it went the Steiner's way. So I, I just thought that there's just too much of that in wrestling nowadays. I cringe when I see it where a guy goes over, then he gets a shit beat out of it. I don't know. Where do we do here? Who, who, who got their story advanced Right. when Conrad beats Jr. then Jr. attacks Conrad, uh, in, in a celebratory way when Conrad's celebrating, it doesn't help Conrad. It doesn't help me. It just doesn't. It's just benign, short thinking booking. It's the easy solution to make sure talents are happy. And that should not be your goal all the time. What's best for the company is what's important, not what's best for the individual. Let's talk about uh, what's next here on the show. It's a pretty rare situation. Ric Flair on pay-per-view in a tag match. He's teaming with his old pal and stablemate Arn Anderson to challenge for the NWA tag team title from Doom. I love Doom. One of my uh, favorite tag teams from this era. It is kind of weird that Flair's on a tag team here and they don't come out to Flair's music. They come out to Arn Anderson's music and Meltzer would say, in a sense, this match was sad to see Flair being phased down. The crowd still reacts to him. Well, he's definitely losing that star era, uh, star aura, excuse me. The match was disappointing, but in a sense, that's unfair. One expects so much from a Flair match on pay-per-view that anything less than four stars is a disappointment. This was a good, but not a great match with a terribly weak looking finish. And of course the terrible finish is they go to a double count out. Is this another, um, another notch in the belt of Jim Hurd and him frustrating Ric Flair. You've got your biggest star in the whole promotion and you're going to put him in a tag match for the tag belts, but they're not going to win. They're not even going to have a clean finish. A double count out with your biggest star on pay-per-view. Well, Ole Anderson, the booker is, is responsible for that finish. Not Jim Hurd. <clears throat> uh, but Ole was aware that it made Hurd happy 
to see his plan being put in place to not build the whole promotion around Nate. Uh, and you know, that's, that's going to be debated and discussed and cussed, uh, from, from forever. Uh, but I think that's what that only just wanted to only covered his ass and he, and he, he didn't like Rick for whatever reason. They didn't get along. You'd think they would, you know, uh, they both are AWA oriented guys, originals, uh, type thing. Uh, only from Wisconsin and train with Vern. And that's a great story where Ole is in the, in the wrestling room and they got all these all these guys there and they get the rookies. We're going to, you can wrestle whoever you want. And so, uh, Ole said, I'll take the little guy. And he referred to Danny Hodge and he didn't do his homework because he got tortured. So, uh, Ole had paid his dues and he knew how the game was played, but for whatever reason, Ole and Nate just didn't see eye to eye. And usually because Ole didn't have anything to do with Rick's money, it had to be creative. And it was. So it, it was, uh, it felt weird to have Rick there, uh, and not have his music play. Are you kidding me? What's, what's that? What are we, what are we doing? Well, we we're trying to phase him out. Oh, so we're not going to play his music and that's going to help phase him out. <laughs> the fans, what were the fans? How are the fans? Look, I love Arn. I see Arn on AEW all the time. Uh, and at, at AEW tapings, we always, it's always cordial. We're both cordial. We respect each other. We have fun telling our stories to each other and experiences we had together. It's all good. But in all due respect, the, the star of the team was Nate. And so why wasn't he just for that presentation, the way you booked the match, why wasn't he presented the way you would normally book some uh, book somebody that's a star. And we had no bigger star than Ric Flair. But he didn't get his music played. So by God, we'll show you. We'll, we'll phase your ass out because we won't play your music. Jeez. Crazy. That's why sometimes I did sound like Red Ass JR at the announced position. Because you sit there and get frustrated. You know what's supposed to go down. Or you know what was originally talked about when the card was booked. Because you helped book the card. But this, we're not seeing what we discussed. So, and that's the, But that's the power of the, of, of the booker. Only had a stroke. To book anything he wanted. So, and heard, and Ole had this, had a strange relationship that seemed at times to be two peas in a pod, two hard ass guys. Uh, and, but the thing about Ole has had infinitely more product knowledge than Mr. Hurd had. And he, he manipulated Hurd into the, some of these situations. So I don't, I know that the, it's easy to blame Hurd for Rick's being a downsized. And, and I get it. I get that. But on this night, it wasn't about Jim Hurd's finish. It was about Ole Anderson's finish. On the outside here for doom, it's no longer woman. Now it's Teddy long. Uh, <laughs> That's a nice trade. Te- Teddy long has, uh, I don't know, had some, not so nice things to say about Ric Flair over the years. What was their relationship like here? Did you know of them to have any problems? I did not. I did not. You know, Teddy was a. Started out as a ring ring crew guy and a care of the jackets guy and all that. Uh, was likable. Everybody liked Teddy. This, you know, I, I like Teddy. He's a good guy. I've known him forever. He's one of those guys that can drive a car with his knees and roll a joint. That's part of our club. Uh, cause you're, you're taking, you're getting, you're making chocolate cake. 
So Teddy was a, it was a fun guy to be around. Be honest with you. I think that his race had something to do with his angst with, uh, Ole, the little degree. I think Ole knew that he could control Teddy totally and he could put Teddy into position. So Ole's got another surrogate of his own tribe in that, uh, in that mix. And, uh, I hate to say that I hope I'm wrong. Just me assume, assuming I know it'll be clickbait for some of these, uh, these, uh, websites. Ross says Anderson's racist. You know, that kind of shit, you know, I, Hey, look, I, I'm not, all I'm saying is, is that Ole talked down to Teddy mm. in a way that he didn't talk down to other guys that were of a different color. Uh, but the, the, I will say this too. Ole was a equal opportunity offender. I was going to say Ole wasn't nice to anybody. No, he wasn't quite frankly, I'll, I'll stand corrected on that deal. So anyhow, he was, uh. That's the deal. And, and Teddy had been around, Teddy had driven the guys, Teddy had done all kinds of grunt work. He had done shit. Nobody else wanted to do. I remember Dusty, I used to love this line. We'd be in a production meeting early on Saturday morning to, before the TVS taping, uh, Saturday night show taping. We taped it that morning. It's pretty cool. Uh, and it was able, you were able to do a tape show live to tape. So you, you did it as if you were live and it made everything so much better. Uh, but, but, uh, Teddy was just a, he, he, he'd hung around and survived and survived and, uh, and, and he got his break and I was happy for him to get his break. And, uh, he didn't, Teddy, Teddy's talking ability was, was outstanding. He had a great personality and great gift of gab. Teddy had been a radio DJ back in the day. He got, you know, the gift of gab, he had it, he refined it, he practiced it. And then, you know, we saw the results of that. Teddy did some really good work in WWE. He had some good roles. He was general manager of this, general manager of that, the manager of this, whatever, uh, involved in storylines. So, uh, the fact that Teddy was being utilized should not have been a surprise. He had the talent. He deserved the opportunity and, uh, of all people to provide him that opportunity was Ole Anderson. Something's just not connecting for me, but it, Hey, look, if it got Teddy long down the road, a little farther then then so be it. All right, let's get to it. I'm really excited about this. I don't know why, but it was again, one of my, this is one of my favorite pay-per-views growing up. I told you off air, I wore this tape out and a lot of it was because of this next guy, Stan Hansen. He's going to do a backstage promo with like, uh, a, a comically hilarious amount of tobacco in his mouth. Yeah. He's screaming. He's spitting on a small pumpkin. It's just dripping down his chest. It's a hilarious visual. And he's going to be taking on Lex Luger here, nine minutes and 28 seconds. And Stan Hansen wins the United States championship here. Uh, Gary, Michael Capetta made the five minute call in two minutes. So they're clearly running short, but, uh, my goodness, it's a, a fun match, at least for me, two and a half stars. You know what the finish is. Luger goes down with a lariat. It's a clean finish. There is a ref bump in here, but it's not necessary. The story is Stan Hansen is just running rough shot over Lex Luger. I really enjoyed this as a kid. Lex Luger was one of my favorites, but this guy, Stan Hansen, this is my first introduction to him as a kid. Talk about believable. This is a scary dude, a legit badass looking dude. And he's your new United States champion, nine minutes and 28 seconds with the Lariat. What'd you think? 
Well, Stan's one of the best guys ever in the business. You know, he's a businessman. He's a pro. He's a smart guy. He's articulate. Even though that big glom of tobacco, that was part of his character, as we, we know. Uh, but Stan is so skilled. And he, he knew the thing about the young wrestlers can look at Stan Hansen and learn from is that Stan had a move set of a, let's say our, just for the argument's sake, a half a dozen things. Of course, the, the, his lariat, not a clothesline, a lariat, because that's, that was a deal, uh, was his, his over his finish. He'd established that finish. He'd beaten the best in Japan with that finish guys that hardly ever, ever, ever lose Stan beat with that finish. And so we just went by what brought him to the dance. And you don't tell a guy that's a veteran that's been a main event star uh, all over the world, you know, how to work a match. You know, you know what they do. You figure out how you can exploit and, and enhance what they do. So Stan always did things in the ring, Conrad, that he could do well. He was smart. He didn't get out of his lane. He didn't go to the top rope. He, he never, he never saw a hurricane run that he liked. <laughs> so is this a Stan with Stan? I thought getting Stan was a great thing for us. I saw Stan wrestle Vader, uh, in a match. Somebody sent me on videotape on an email or something. And I told the committee, you know, we need these two big bastards or two guys we need because we get, we need monster heels. You know why we got this guy named sting. And Sting is going to be our guy, apparently. So if he's going to be our guy, let's don't screw him and not have any opponents ready for him. So that was why we brought in Hanson and, 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 and Vader and, uh, and, and Leon and, and Stan both had, they didn't wrestle each other, but they both contributed to the brand. But we knew when we got Stan, his obligations to Japan were already established. We knew he would be on a short leash and a short term deal because he had other obligations already committed. So people I've, I've seen on, on Twitter, somebody asked the other day, uh, why Hanson, you know, why he lost to Luger and he was over blah, blah, blah. Well, he was leaving. That's why he was leaving. And we booked that match where he left in a, I think that was the bull rope match. Uh, so they got to touch all the corners. So there's a way to protect him there a little bit. So it didn't get bad Japanese press. But Stan was a prize for us. I thought Stan was a big contributor. He's one of the most respected guys in the business. I thought he could help the young guys in the locker room. But I've always thought, you know, you, you want to select talents that can enhance the locker room in more than one way. And he could. So good outing for us. I think the finish shocked a lot of people. Oh, yeah, because, for sure. Because a lot of times guys are just losing that, using that clothesline. but not this one. I think we sold it good too. Cause you know, I knew what the, I knew what brought him to the dance. And I knew that, that, that Larry, it was uh, pretty historic. You hear the wrestlers talk about, you know, Stan has real bad vision, mm -hmm. really, really bad vision. So Stan would say, he, he's told me this. He says, sometimes I get the guy, the guy is standing and he's getting ready to take the lariat. He said, it, all it is is a blur. I said, so you're guessing. He said, pretty much. That's why sometimes he hit guys in the nose or the face or the chest more often. He got it safe, but he, it was all a blur. And then another guy says to be goddamn JR. You don't know what it's like to see him in, in comeback mode, like a damn bull snorting spit and slobber and knowing that he can't see you or, or, or are you going to hit me with that, that heavy tree tree, like uh, Lariat. 
So Sam was a legend and I, I'm glad we got to have him there. I don't know if he had much fun. He, he got paid well, uh, but I don't know if he had, he had fun, fun, uh, cause we weren't that exactly a fun place to, to be at that point in time because of the, all the indecision and the lack of the lack of ability to get a straight answer. But Stan was, Stan was a keeper. No doubt. He said, I love the guy. Is it fair to say that he's a guy who wants to go out there and get really physical? I mean, he expects it in return though, right? I mean, a lot has been written and said over the years about how I was staying with stiff and blah, blah, blah. And he does have a couple of punches in here where you're like, well, he didn't pull that at all. I mean, that was, that was a potato and a half, but he expected it in return, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. He didn't have a problem with receipts. He was going to get his stuff in to make the match look believable and, and break the audience's uh, suspension of disbelief where you forget that it's a work. Uh, and that was his goal. He was that way. And I'll tell you how he learned a lot of that, or at least the tradition started was back in mid South when he and Frank Goodish, who became Bruiser Brody were tag team partners and they had, uh, and cowboy had him, he'd always fire him up. You know, he was go, go, you get over, go get over. So some of those poor enhancement guys on, on mid South television in that era, they were working with Hanson and Goodish. You get access into that footage, go back and look at it. They abused people. Now they, they'd help them up in the locker room that build them up, thank them, be professional and all that stuff. But we're going to, before they went out there, you knew what was it, what you're in for. This is not going to be, you know, Briscoe and funk smooth as silk, uh, you know, transitions and catch as catch can stuff. We're going to fight. You know, I think, uh, JBL got a lot of his stuff, Stan Hansen. And, uh, you know, I see, uh, Mr. Brody Lee. Reminds me of, of Bruiser Brody, their presence and their legacies are still alive in the form of a few handful of talents that re- recognize that my skill set and my body type will, can coincide somewhat positively with these two dudes. And, and that, in, that entails for me to be physical. Let's talk about our main event sting. Who was our hero? He is our world champion. He's going to be defending his NWA world title against Sid vicious and Sid gets quite the reception here in Chicago. Meltzer would say more than half the crowd live were cheering for him. And he says the match itself stunk for a main event, although no fault of sting. He did a few flying moves, including a dive over the top rope, splashing onto vicious Sid just can't work, but he looks phenomenal standing still. So we're going to talk about the match and, and obviously the creative involved in it, but man, Sid had so much charisma in this era. I see why everybody, whether it was heard or, or Vince McMahon, they were enamored with the look. Yeah. Uh, he looks like he's ready for prime time and he does little subtle things where he looks to the crowd and gets a reaction. He has all of that. It's just when he tries to put it together that maybe it's not as good as we would hope. Uh, yeah, I think Sid had, Sid was still finding himself. I believe he knew what he wanted to be. He knew what he could be, but he didn't want to recognize perhaps that he just wasn't there yet. Uh, but there's no doubt his upside was unlimited. The, the look was a look that was being accepted as a star look, you know, he's six, nine lean muscular, 
great facial expressions. He had everything physically that you would ever want in a, in a monster heel or a monster baby face. So, uh, but I just don't think that there's always a lot of compromise in trying to get these matches structured and sting was getting, you know, he wasn't being protective, protective, but he was being aware that, Hey, look, I'm the champion. He put me in this position. So I, I need to be strong in some, to some degree, which he was right. So, uh, it just, you know, I was, I've talked to stone cold many times about matches and over our cocktail or two. And, you know, he'd talk about a guy that I won't name, but that he said, uh, he's a great guy and he's a hall of fame guy, but we didn't have chemistry. So consequently that lack of chemistry, I think reared its ugly head in this match. Uh, the Barry thing, uh, the creative was, you'll explain that, but it was, it was iffy at best. If it had pulled off perfectly, then cool, but it didn't. Uh, but I think the, the chemistry between the basic chemistry, as simple as that sounds between Steve Borden and Sid Udy just wasn't there on that night for sure. The creative I actually liked, I do think the execution could have been a little better. But I'll tell you, I think I fault some of the production team more so than the performers. Let's explain what we're doing. All of a sudden you see Ric Flair and Arn Anderson come out to divert everyone's attention. And it looks like the horsemen are stacking the deck against Sting, which we know has been the story for years at this point. And they're going to brawl to the dressing room. And when they get back in the ring, unbeknownst to everyone, when Sid captures the pinfall. He didn't pin sting. He pinned Barry Wyndham dressed up like sting. Wyndham collapsed on a body slam attempt. Sid vicious pins him. Boom. Sid's our champion. Fireworks are going off. Balloons are flying everywhere. Sid's parading around with the title and everyone is cheering. Like they've just seen a major moment, but then all of a sudden Steve Borden, the real sting comes out with a rope around his wrist. The idea being that. The horseman distracted him, got him backstage, tied him up to something. And then Barry Wyndham parading around Asting lost the belt to Sid. Well, anyway, he runs to the ring while the fake sting runs away and they totally missed that on camera. And the ref is watching what happened, sees the two stings, restarts the match. Sting hits vicious with the belt, which should have been a DQ. He splashes him in the corner, cradles him for the win star and a half. Meltzer says the work of the match itself was a dud. Although sting gets a half a star for trying those hot moves and the finish gets a star. Meltzer even wrote without a doubt, the finish of the sting Sid vicious main event was the most creative finish to a major NWA show in many years. It ranks along with the twin referee finish of the Andre Hogan special for NBC. Of course, any finish of the nature has virtually zero credibility. You've got two different polarized schools of thought and many people are in the middle. One school of thought is that pro wrestling in this country, because of what it has evolved into can't have any credibility to begin with. And it's a joke to try and pretend it does from that standpoint, the finish of this main event was excellent. Another school of thought is without that credibility, at least in the main event, you can't sell a show to a mass audience. And in that case, the finish of the main event was a mistake. What say you, Jim, are you of the mind that this is a mistake or it was good. I think the idea on paper was excellent. I, I thought the execution of it was a little bit rugged. You miss, miss camera shots. 
uh, things that happened that should not have happened. Uh, but again, the match itself just didn't deliver for me. Uh, we had, we had a match earlier. Uh, we talked about chemistry uh, and we talked about this and that, but we, this match is one of the, the one we mentioned is this the chemistry between Sid and, and sting on this night just wasn't there. And it may have been, look, this could have been a late in the day. We finally got this decided, you know, I could see that finish and all the little nuances being refined while the show was ongoing. So I, I don't know. I, I, I believe in credibility. I don't want to create a situation. If I have the opportunity to, to not, I don't want to create a situation that fans roll their eyes at something that's going on. Oh, geez. What, what are they doing that now you're They're out of the element. They're, they're out of the, they, they, we've lost their emotional investment. They're focusing on negative instead of positive. So you never want to do that. And I think this match, because the finish was a little bit convoluted and we did miss some key shots that, that, that affected it in a negative way. So, you know, it was, but it was creative. You can't deny that it was creative, but it just, unfortunately for, for elements, as you mentioned, Conrad, beyond the scope of the talents themselves. It just, it, it, it failed. I actually like this. I think if you're going to go back and watch two matches on the show, I would recommend the Steiner's nasties match above all else. But secondly, this just for the finish and Meltzer does make a good point. He says that at this point, Sid is the hottest wrestler in the promotion and he would lose quite a bit of luster if he lost. So we know we don't want to take the belt off of sting yet. We're not done with his run. And we want to keep this black scorpion thing going. So we've got to find a creative finish. And this is what they came up with. I kind of dig it. If you had to pinpoint somebody on the booking committee and say, ah, oh, this feels like a so-and-so idea, who would so-and-so be? Oh, that was Oli's idea. Okay. Yeah, that's Oli's idea. Uh, and again, the idea itself was not bad, but we didn't plan on poor execution. And it, it went on a little long, but we, and it was a nice story to tell sting of the, he'd been restrained and you know, the, 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 the fix was in thanks to the horseman and blah, blah, blah. But again, I, I just thought it was, it, it, when you book a match, how do you book a match without a finish in mind? Right. When you're trying to protect the guy that's losing. So you need to have the finish booked. At the same time, you book your book, the match, uh, knowing the criteria involved and the criteria was, well, we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to got to protect Sid here cause he's hot. Well, you knew that when you booked it. And so that, that would be, you know, when watch or talk to, I've heard these booking meetings, I learned so much work with bill and Ernie and all these guys. Now I've heard bill, I mean, undress Ernie uh, brutally. You book the match with a dog, let's say, who was the hottest thing we had and, uh, in that era and how, and what's the finish going to be. And then, you know, Ernie would go through these things like, well, we'll knock a ref down then we'll have another ref come in and then we'll knock him down. And, and you can see cowboy looking like a Yosemite Sam with his face getting redder by the minute. And he said, how in the goddamn hell can you book a match involving our top star that's making you big money and making me money? Uh, and not have a finish involved. Here's what it's going to happen. He's going to beat the son of a bitch with a, with a he's going to headbutt him. And then he's going to give him the big thump. That's the finish. Okay. That's the finish. 
Jesus Christ. Cause cowboy didn't have any patience for guys that made a huge issue of every single loss. Uh, he just didn't, it was a part of the storytelling and it's an athletic competition. And it's just like, uh, you know, I was watching, I was thinking about you a couple of three weeks ago, watching the, uh, Georgia, Alabama game, mm-hmm. two great teams, but somebody's going to lose. Yep. And nobody's going to call well, that finishes this, it's a contest. So if we want you to believe that what we're doing are, uh, are, are, uh, elaborate athletic contests, then you gotta be prepared to have winners and losers because that goes with the process. So, uh, that was kind of my thought on that deal. I, I, you just don't book a big match like that where you know you got to protect somebody, Conrad, and you don't have the finish in mind. You, the finish should have been established long before you got to the building. No argument for me. Uh, of course, on the heels of this, they're going to get to go to the house shows and, and keep this match on top. So it'll be Sting and uh, Sid Vicious and rematches everywhere. Uh, fans in the Observer tended to enjoy the event. 57.5% gave it a thumbs up. 9% thumbs in the middle, 33 and a half percent thumbs down. What would you say about this one? You watched it back for the first time in 30 years, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Well, I, I enjoy the nostalgia of it. That's it, it taints my opinion, but I, I give it a thumbs up. Uh, there was things on there that, you know, this, you go back and look at it. There are fundamental errors, you know, to have the free birds in a 17 minute match, a cold match with the young bloods. Why 17 minutes? You know, uh, and sometimes that's the same thing about uh, that. We talked about same mindset of these finishes to get a talent to shut the hell up and quit bitching. You give them an extra three or four minutes. So that's going to make them happy. And that's what you do. But, but it, they think it helps them. They don't realize it hurts them. You know, the free birds and the young blood should have a 10 minute match. If that, right. So, uh, that was a lot, a lot of things like that. I look back on that. Well, if we'd have done this, if we'd have changed that, well, that's the nature of the beast and life in general. There's a lot of things that you and I could probably say, well, I could like to do that over, uh, you know, it's just wait, that's part of the journey we're on our life journey. So, uh, but I give it a thumbs up. I, it was a, it was fun to watch. It was nice and nostalgic. Uh, I enjoyed seeing a lot of the guys there that, you know, it was, but it was a very challenging time, uh, to be in WCW at that point because the frustrations of the infrastructure just being loose and, and loosey goosey and, and sometimes politically charged and everybody's got a little agenda, you know, here's what he, he said this, but here's what he meant type deal. Right. A lot of that, sh- a lot of that shit going on. I guess after a while, this gets frustrating. Well, let's talk about the best match and the worst match, the worst match, according to the readers of the wrestling observer, you knew what it was Freebirds versus renegade warriors. But the best match is overwhelmingly Steiners versus nasties. I'm sure we agree. That's the best match on the card, right? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. That was, it was, it was a match that we still remember. And we, and why do we remember it? We remember it because it had very underscored physicality. It took you out of the moment of this is a staged performance because the hits you were seeing were real physicality. Fans love it. They can't get enough of it. And, uh, so it's real simple to me that all the elaborate finish of the sting presentation, uh, you know, everything else on the show paled in comparison to a physical 
knockdown, drag out, reality-based tag team match involving the Steiners and the Nasty Boys. No doubt. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Grilling JR. We hope that as we wind things down here, you will join us next week when we're going to cover Cyber Sunday 2006. We haven't talked about 2006 WWE before, so I'm excited to do that. But before we preview what's coming, I should give you a preview of what's coming here at my house. I got a rack of ribs on the smoker. I got a butt <laughs> on the smoker and it's all yeah. seasoned with JR's all purpose seasoning. I got mine over at jrsbbq.com. And uh, I even saw my Twitter feed this morning blow up with people saying what a great value it was. I think it's like five bucks. And while you're there, you should also pick up, if you haven't already, the main event mustard, of course, the Chipotle ketchup. And uh, as you're sitting around the smoker waiting to pull your meat off, you're going to need something <laughs> to read. How about under the black hat? And right now, you can get it autographed and shipped to the lower 48 for a great value. It is hands down one of the greatest three wrestling books ever written. And it can be yours just in time for the holidays. If you have a wrestling friend or fan in your life, you should go ahead and start thinking about stocking stuffers. An autograph book from Jim Ross has got to be high on their list. Maybe they've already got it. You know what they'll use and remember you for some of this all purpose seasoning. Uh, it's been a game changer at my house. You're going to enjoy it. Just like I have when people come over, they want to know, Hey, where'd you get that? And I could, I could kayfabe them. And I could say, oh, I made it myself, but I tell them the truth. JRSBBQ.com, man. And this stuff's flying off the shelves for you guys right now. Right, Jim? Yeah, we're, we're, we're challenged to keep it in stock. It's really worked out well, Conrad. Uh, it's, it's just, uh, you know, it's just been an amazing, it, it's got over the season has gotten over. You know, we had the same thing happen with our, with our, uh, main event mustard. It's a, it's a honey mustard with a little jalapeno mash in it. And man, it's got personality. It's, uh, you know, it'll make you like eating a hot dog again, <laughs> sandwiches. Uh, I use it on, on my salmon on the grill, but we're hoping that from wrestling fans are listening to us here, that they will give up my, my website a shot during the holidays. Like you said, Conrad, I will sign these books and I'm getting ready to sign a bunch of them this weekend. Uh, I'm going to, I sign these books and there's a, when you order it at jrsbbq.com, you can request what you want me to say to the person receiving the book. And it's a lot of funny as hell. It's just really people are creative and they're getting it for their buddy or their brother-in-law or their dad or, or something like that. But it's, it's a great gift item and, and I'll make it personal so that, you know, the, the person receiving it will know that you thought enough of them and. You created a little, uh, uh, you know, what you wanted on the, on the signing. So it's a, it's been fun. So, uh, and we work around the clock. We don't ever close as far as uh, seven days a week. You know, Stephen link does our, is my partner in that operation. And he's very, he, you know, I demand that I say that great customer service, you know, we're not going to let you down. No. And, and so, you know, it just, a it's an idea holidays coming up, birthdays, all these things. Uh, you know, I can tell you this. What if a guy was getting married? You knew he was a wrestling fan. He's getting married. What kind of, what better, uh, wedding gift than, than, than a gift pack? Cause you get all kinds of stuff to eat or you can get a book to read and you can get it personalized. And I've done that a lot. So it's like, it's got, it's going to be fun for the holidays. We're going to 
bust our ass to take care of everybody. And so, uh, and we hope you, you'll just give us an, an opportunity to do so. Well, here's the thing too. When you're thinking about gifts, I think it, it's hilarious. If you know that your friend listens to this show and, and let's say I was getting one from my old pal, Casio, if I had an autograph book from Jim, I would say, Casio, here's your goddamn push. Best wishes, <laughs> Jim Ross. Come on. That's a home run. Go check it out right now. JRsBBQ.com. By the way, if you've got a question for next week's show, it's easy to engage us. He is at JRsBBQ. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad on Twitter, but our show account is at JR grilling. And you can ask questions there right now on top of cyber Sunday. Oh, six it's King Booker taking on big show and John Cena for the world heavyweight title. Believe it or not, we've got Ric Flair and Roddy Piper taking on the spirit squad for the tag titles. Lita is in there with Mickey James for the women's championship rated RKO, which is edge and Randy Orton are going to take on Shawn Michaels and triple H Eric Bischoff is your special guest referee for the intercontinental title. It's Jeff Hardy and Carlito. We've also got crime time in there with the Highlanders, Charlie Haas and viscera and Lance Cade and Trevor Murdoch in a Texas tornado match. And in our opener, it's Umaga taking on Kane. It's an interesting time for the company. It's November 5th, 2006, and we're going to be back here doing it with you next week. You can get all these shows early and ad free. And, uh, we hope you guys are ready for a really, really big finish to the year. We've got so much great stuff planned on the 12th. We'll hit you with clash of the champions. 12 on the 19th. We'll be back with survivor series. 2000 we will wrap up the month of November, just in time for Thanksgiving with Starcade 87. As we roll into December, we'll have Umaga. Armageddon 2000 clash of the champions four, starcade 1990. And we're going to finish the year with a little tribute show for you, Jim. I'm really excited about it. We're pulling out all the stops. You can get all these shows early and ad free at adfreeshows.com. until next time he is at JR's BBQ. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on grilling JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Heavy on the mister and don't miss full gear coming up Saturday night, November the 7th, folks on pay-per-view. It's going to be a sovereign knocker next weekend. Set your calendar. You'll be there. I'll be there. You should be there. It's full gear from AEW. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.